We actually finished looking at all of Isaiah last week, but I wanted to come back and look at Isaiah 53. So if you've got your Bibles, open to Isaiah chapter 53. And I specifically wanted to do this one separately because it's such a, well, to me, it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. Simply the, the amount of detail that the prophet records here. And it kind of sums up exactly why Jesus came and what he did for us. So even though we've gone through the entire book, I wanted to come back and spend uh, just a few minutes tonight taking a look at this chapter. Uh, this is the very heart of Isaiah's gospel here. Uh, and especially the, uh, chapters 40 through 66. It's, it's the, the culmination of everything that the prophet is talking about because it takes us straight to the cross. Uh, one of the misconceptions that the Israelites had was that the Messiah was going to be this conquering king that was going to ride in with the army and save the day. He was going to destroy all the, the worldly enemies and put them under his feet. He was going to reestablish Jerusalem as the capital of the world. And he was going to reign on the throne forever like King David. And somehow, because there are passages all throughout the Old Testament, we'll see some of them in some of the other prophets, Somehow they, they totally missed this entire section of Isaiah talking about a suffering servant. A Messiah who, although he is king, had to suffer and lay down his life for his people. And when you read Isaiah 53, and it's actually going to start in the last couple of verses of Isaiah 52. We're going to begin with Isaiah 52, 13. There's this prophecy that talks about how the Messiah is going to be exalted above all nations. But then it immediately talks about how before that he must be humiliated. And it's a contradiction. And the, the Jews at that time didn't understand how this Messiah, this all-powerful eternal king, whose name was going to be above all names, how he was going to suffer. And they really struggled with this section of Isaiah. And even the prophets themselves did not quite understand how this king, this one that had been promised that was going to come and bring deliverance, if he was all-powerful, if he was almighty, if he was the, the promise of God, then how in the world could he suffer the way Isaiah talks about? But this Messiah, in order, and, and we understand it better because we're on this side of the cross. We have Paul writing these letters to, to the Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians where he talks about the mind of Christ humbling himself, in, emptying himself. So when we read Isaiah, it's not as contradictory. It makes a little more sense because, once again, we're on this side of the cross, and we have seen the fulfillment of these prophecies. But imagine if you were living in that time, and you were facing all this external pressure, all these foreign nations, and the prophets had said that God was going to destroy your kingdom because of your sin, but one day he would send his king to make everything right. That would sound pretty good, wouldn't it? You would be looking forward to that, but almost immediately, Isaiah says, but before that happens, he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to humble themselves. So if you have your Bibles there in Isaiah 52, I'm going to read the last three verses. And then we're going to read Isaiah 53. It said, See, my servant, this is the Messiah, will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. And that's what they were looking for. That's what they were wanting. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. So can you see the tension there, the contradiction? If he's going to be successful, raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, and the very next thing the prophet said is that he's going to be beaten beyond recognition. Mm -hmm. If 
you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, one of the most difficult things to watch, and I've watched it twice. I don't know that I will ever watch that film again, but the scene where those Roman soldiers are beating Jesus almost beyond recognition, and you can see it, his appearance was so disfigured, he did not even look like a man. So he will sprinkle many nations in the idea of sprinkling his blood. Remember the Passover lamb, the blood was sprinkled on the doorpost to protect them from death. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. But they will see what had not been told them. They will understand what they had not heard. And then he, we jump right into Isaiah 53. These first three verses, and, and notice how Isaiah is building up. Uh, this gets more dramatic the further you get in. But these first three verses are his rejection. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord was a figurative language. The power and strength of God Almighty. So who has believed this message? Whom has God revealed his power and strength to? He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty so that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. How was the Messiah born? In a manger in Bethlehem. Did royal kings and courts come and worship? No, it was a bunch of shepherds. It says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Think about as you read through the four Gospels. The majority of the people did what to Jesus? They ignored him. They rejected him. He had the 12 apostles. He's had this crowd that went everywhere he went. But as you get deeper and deeper in Jesus' message and his ministry, the crowds get smaller and smaller. The greatest example is right after he has fed those 5,000 men and all those women and children. They show up the next day wanting to see what he's going to do. And he says, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And the people were like, that's it, we're out of here. In fact, even his own apostles, they called to the side and said, this message is difficult. Who can accept it? The religious leaders especially despised him and rejected him. They could not stand it. To the Pharisees, they were losing their power and influence. Because like we looked at this morning, they were beating people over the head with the law, saying this is what the law says, this is what the law says. And they considered themselves the the interpreters and guardians of the law. And Jesus said, I know Moses said this, but let me explain to you what it really meant. Let me show you what God really meant when he told you these things. So the Pharisees were losing influence. They were losing power. The Sadducees who controlled the temple, they didn't really believe much of anything. They were liberals. But they made a lot of money on those sacrifices. So for Jesus to go in and start turning over temple tables and knocking money changers' bags into the floor, they're losing income. They hated him. They despised him. And now the unbelief of Israel, because remember, this is what the prophets were pointing to. This is why there was going to be divine judgment, is because they had disregarded God's word. And it's not going to stop when Messiah comes. Even though they say they're waiting for Messiah, they're looking for him to come, it's not going to stop. The unbelief of Israel now is going to culminate. They're going to see him, and they're going to hear him, but they're not going to trust him. They're not going to believe him. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, he says right at the very beginning, the light came into the darkness. He came to his own people. You know what John says happened? They rejected him. They denied him. Even though he came with the arm of the Lord, the power 
John has seven miracle signs that he puts in his gospel, and each one of them was to demonstrate that the power of God was with Jesus, that his message was to be trusted, and his message was to be listened to. And they rejected him. They rejected his words. When he taught, they didn't want to hear it. Even though the common everyday man said, I've never heard anybody teach like this. He's talking like somebody who has authority. The religious leader said, we don't want to hear it. They rejected his words. They rejected the very miracles. He cast out demons. And you remember what the Pharisees said? Well, he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. Even when he demonstrated the authority through his works, they denied him. But most importantly, they denied his person. They denied that he was God in the flesh. Even when he told them, one of the most intriguing sections of scripture, he's having these conversations. And they're talking about Abraham, the promise. And he looks at him and says, before Abraham was, I am. And they all, they wanted to kill him because they understood he was claiming divinity. He was claiming himself to be God. They actually denied the fact that he could even be Messiah. The Messiah can't come from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. But here he was, this tender little plant, this root of David that grew up. And it says he, he wasn't the most impressive looking thing. Now, the Bible says David was a handsome man, and David could sing. And David played the harp real nice. There was nothing about Jesus, the human being, that would just make people automatically drawn to him. Perhaps we could understand that that was the case. Well, historians actually said the Galilee's, uh, the area he came from and all that, they were really a darker colored Jew than, than, than that part of that, the, the, yep. where they came from. But he was not a very, like to say. He and not, not only that, to, to use modern terminology, they were backwoods rednecks. Yeah. There was nothing impressive about Jesus as a human being. If he had been this handsome, tall, mighty warrior like David, we can understand why people flocked to him. People came to David because, hey, that guy looks right. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't look the part. And in their minds, he did not feel the part. They had this religion based on God's law and God's revelation. And then when God's very word, the way John says it, God's very word, the very word was that was there at the beginning, that was with God, that was God, when God's very word dwelt among them, they rejected him. And they denied him. And they killed him. Completely. They completely rejected him. They called him names. You're a Samaritan. You're demon-possessed. Even though it was all right here. He fulfilled every one of these prophecies and they could not see it. The next section, 4 through 6, talks about his redemption. Even though he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer. He's still going to be exalted. Name above all names. Verse 4 through 6 says, He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished who? Him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus told his followers at one point, He's talking about sheep. He's like, the sheep hear the master's voice and they recognize the master's voice. And the master recognizes his sheep. 
He says, I am the good shepherd. He said, the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And another interesting thing that we sometimes overlook there, and he says, but I've got sheep from another pen as well. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about us. And here we see it. We're all like sheep. We all have wandered off. We have all been that one sheep that wandered off from the 99. And the shepherd did what? He came and looked for us. He was willing to die for us. But more than that, Paul talks about Jesus took our sins upon himself. He was perfect. Not only did he take our place, it actually says God's wrath. And I admit, when I think about this sometimes, it makes my head hurt. Because I don't quite understand how it works. But it said God's wrath was poured out upon him as he hung on the cross. Every sin that had been committed up to that point. Including those who were crucified. Because remember Jesus hung on the cross and said what? Father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Every sin from the beginning. Adam and Eve. To that point. Every sin that had been committed from that point to right now where we're here right now. And every sin of every person that has not even been born yet were placed on Jesus' shoulders. He took the punishment so that we wouldn't have to. And let's just be perfectly honest. We had to. We deserve it. I taught a class this past week at camp. And we're talking to 8, 9, 10, 11 year olds. And we're trying to explain to them why Jesus had to die. And Paul makes it very clear in Romans. How many people have sinned? All of us. And in Romans 6, he says, the wages, what we have earned, what we deserve is death. But because of what Jesus did, his sins going on to him, God's wrath being poured out on him. Paul actually says, he who knew no sin became our sin so that we would not have to suffer. And then we get the free gift of eternal life. We get perfect spiritual healing and restoration and we are reconciled back to God the Father. And the physical sufferings, like I said, if, if you've ever seen that movie, Passion of the Christ, that is some of the most difficult scenes to watch. When they start beating him up to the time where they crucify him, it is gruesome, it is violent, and it is difficult to watch. And some scholars suggest that he didn't even get close to the suffering and the physical pain Jesus endured for us. But that's nothing compared to the spiritual agony that he took upon us. We're talking about Jesus who walked in perfect communion and harmony with God. Who never sinned, who didn't deserve any of that. And then his sin, he felt the weight of my sin and the things that I had done wrong. And he died because of me, so that I wouldn't have to. It's good when we don't get what we deserve. And verse 6 says, God Almighty punished him because of me, and because of you, and because of everyone. Continuing on, verse 7, 8, 9, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. I can't read that without imagining Jesus standing there with those Roman soldiers as they put a purple robe on him. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head and they spit in his face. They beat him. They plucked the hairs from his face and mocked him. They fell down and mocked worship him and humiliate him and blasphemed him. And what did he say? Nothing. 
I can't read that without seeing him stand before the Sanhedrin, those religious leaders, as they beat him and hit him. He said, prophesy, who hit you? And he could have told them. He could have stopped it right then and there. And that may be the most amazing thing. Scripture says he could have called down an entire army of angels and wiped out everything, and he did not say a word. Even before Pilate. And Pilate was confused. He's like, don't you want to say something? I can spare you. And Jesus does say, you have no power except what's given to you. And he took the abuse. He took the mockery. He took the pain. And he took it all for us. Verse 8 says, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And it was us that did it to him. And who considered his faith? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. As he actually hung on the cross, you remember the religious leaders came out and said, if you come down off that cross, I'll believe you now. If you're really the Messiah, do it. It's a good thing it was him and not me, because if I had had the power to come back off that cross and put them in their place, the story may have ended a lot differently. All of the taunts, all of the mocking, Jesus could have done everything that they mocked him with. Just like all the temptations that Satan threw at him, Jesus could have done all those things. But he knew that he had to do it. I asked a question Wednesday in our class to these kids. And I asked them, did Jesus have to die on the cross? I said, if you think he had to die, raise your hand. And about half of them raised their hand. And I said, if you don't think he had to die, raise your hand. The other half raised their hand. I'm like, you're both right. Jesus did not have to do what he did. It was his choice because of God's love for us. He did not have to do it. Scripture makes it clear. He actually prayed to the Father in the garden the night before saying, if there is any other way, let it be that. But, what? Not my will, but yours. He did not have to do it. <clears throat> but, because of our sin, because of what we deserve, in order for us to be saved, he absolutely had to do it. There was no other way. Jesus had to die for me. But he didn't have to. It's a paradox. But it was the only way. And I don't know that we even understand how fortunate we are that he chose to do it. We'll understand it one day because one day we'll see him face to face. We, like Thomas, will see the prince in his arms and his feet and his side. He was struck because of our rebellion. It's easy for us to look at and say, well, Isaiah's talking to them. He's not talking to us. But Paul makes it very, very clear. Every single one of us put Jesus on the cross. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Who was hanging on each side? Criminals. People who deserved exactly what they were getting. But he was with a rich man in his death. Are you amazed at the amount of detail here? Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, had a brand new tomb, had just been cut, never used, but because he was a believer. He and Nicodemus went and got Jesus' body and fulfilled this prophecy. He had done no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully. He, in fact, was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the one that taught if someone strikes you on one cheek, what do you do? You turn the other. Think about it. If you had the, the power of God Almighty, if you could call down an angel army 
Would you have stood there and taken the abuse and taken the hit, taken the spitting in the face? The beatings with the whip, the crown of thorns, the spikes driven through your wrist, knowing that at any moment you could make it stop? That's what Jesus did for us. But, because he suffered, he humbled himself. There is justification for the Messiah. His name will be above all names. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Look at verse 10. This verse amazes me. The way it reads in English. The Lord, what does it say? The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Because God loved us so much. God knew that that was the only way to fix the problem, to fix the sin issue, to make everything right. He knew that Jesus had to go through all those things. It says, when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure, and that's our salvation, will be accomplished. And after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. That's us. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. One of the things that calls believers, we are God's people, we're his children, we're the church. But one of the ones that, that just, it's, it sounds odd to me, but when I really think about it, we're his inheritance. We have been given to him as a reward for his humility. For his sacrifice. It's like he knew the reward. He knew the prize. And he was willing to do it because he loved us that much. I don't know about you. But sometimes I have a hard time imagining myself as a prize. Or as a reward. But yet that's what it says. We were his inheritance. I will give him the many. Those who put their faith and trust in him as a portion. He will receive the mightiest spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death. He was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus says the greatest type of love is to do what? To lay down your life for your friend. And one of the amazing things is because of what Jesus did, we are called friends of God. Christ's reward. And once again, I, I just admit sometimes it's hard to me imagine myself being a reward. I joke with Robin all the time, she got the good end of the deal. I mean, I, I got the good end of the deal. I got that mother by me. It's on video, too. I messed that one up. <laughs> I got the better end of the deal. She's a prize. I'm not so much. So I confess, I'm God's prize. I'm his reward. And so are you. Remind yourself of that. Christ's reward, apart from actually doing the will of the Father, it pleased Jesus to do the will of the Father. That he was raised from the dead. That's that he will prolong his days. He was raised from the dead, never to die again. He was giving a spiritual family. That's us. He shall see his seed. We, Jesus had no physical offspring here on earth, but we are a spiritual offspring. We are the offspring of Abraham. We are a spiritual household of God. And for Jesus, it was worth every second of it. cross is vividly displayed there and I, that's the reason I wanted to come back to Isaiah 53 as we finished Isaiah 
Look at all the details. He was crucified between thieves. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. He was pierced. He was beaten. He made intercession for us, the transgressors, the sinners. And when they mocked him, when they spit on him, I don't know about you, but that right there is a deal breaker for me. I, that's just one of the most terrible things to spit on me in my face and to make fun of me. And yet he stood there silently. He took it all, knowing he could stop it. And he literally prayed for those who had driven spikes through his wrist and his feet. He prayed for those of us, those of us that hadn't even been born. He prayed for us. And he interceded. And now we don't get what we deserve. We don't get the wages that we have earned. We get a free gift because of what Jesus did for us. Isaiah makes it very clear here. There is no judgment on them or us because Jesus bore it all. And the question we ask ourselves is, do we really believe that? Do we really trust Jesus? And if we do, are we really living that way? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the, the vivid descriptions that your prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And now we can look and clearly see that this was your plan. That Jesus lived a perfect life. He did not deserve any of it, but because of us, because of your love for us, he bore it all. We are humbled and we are thankful. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we return the love that you have given us, not only to you, but to those around us. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.